Thank you for coming along this afternoon on this beautiful day. It's, uh, it's lovely to have you join us. And uh, we're going to try to tap into someone who's had to think for his job about trying to make sense of the world we live in. And I was thinking as I was coming here that I think a lot of us uh, worry about the world and wonder about it and uh, become bemused and befuddled by it. But uh, James Clapper and people in uh, his arena have to think it through. This is their particular uh, purpose in life. This is what they offer the people uh, who employ them and all of us by extension. And uh, James was very much involved in the preparation of this global trends paradox of progress. And there were just a just to, just to set us up thinking about how they, uh, the National Intelligence Council thought this through. Thinking about the future is vital but hard. Crises keep intruding, making it all but impossible to look beyond daily headlines to what lies over the horizon. In those circumstances, thinking outside the box, to use the cliche, too often loses out to keeping up with the inbox. Therefore, every four years they produce this report. Experience teaches us how much history unfolds through cycles and shifts, and still human nature commonly expects tomorrow to be pretty much like today, which is usually the safest bet on the future until it is not. <laughs> so, with that in mind, this is the sort of... Uh, uh, life that uh, James Clapper has chosen with uh, great interest, a retired Lieutenant General from the US Air Force. He was Director of US, uh, the United States National Intelligence uh, Service, America's Chief Spy. Some people have uh, talked about him from 2010 till last year. This capped a 50-year career in the US military and intelligence services, mainly serving Republican presidents by and large, but of course serving President Obama before he stepped down on the, just before the election of Donald Trump, just after the election of Donald Trump. He's been a guest of the National Security College at the ANU. This is his last, he's been here for a month, this is his last um, particular uh, uh, meeting before he goes off to South Korea and then he'll return to Washington to uh, resume his post at the Center for a New American Security as Distinguished Sen Senior Fellow for Intelligence and National Security. So I invite him now, uh, and we'll talk, hear him address us, and then we'll have a bit of a Q&A, and then we'll throw the uh, floor open to you for some questions and have you out here sharp at 3.15. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome James Clapper. I am humbled, thrilled, and privileged to be here in this iconic venue. I do want to allay any concerns that I may break into an aria. Uh, <laughs> absolutely no worries. I am reminded of the apocryphal story about the tourist in New York City who stopped the beatnik and asked him, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And the beatnik said, Practice, man. <laughs> Thinking about the future, <clears throat> as Geraldine indicated, is hard. And she kind of took uh, my line here away, but I think it's worth repeating. You know, crises and drama keep intruding, especially these days in our country, making it all but impossible to look beyond the daily headlines to what lies over the horizon. We inevitably 
get consumed with the urgent at the expense of the important. <clears throat> and this, I can tell you, is a pitfall of uh, my profession of intelligence. But long-term thinking is critical to framing strategy, and longer perspective requires us to ask the hard questions about which issues and choices will be the most consequential in the decades ahead, even if they don't generate the here and now big headlines. Peering into the future can be, can be very scary, and it is very humbling. So today I am going to talk about the Global Trends Report, as, as Geraldine indicated, which the U.S. National Intelligence Council, which sits at the top or apex of our intelligence analysis effort, and every four years they publish uh, this Global Trends document. It is a major assessment of the forces and choices shaping the world before us over the, <clears throat> the next two decades. The sixth and most recent of these reports was released in January 2017, coinciding with uh, my departure as the U.S. Director of National Intelligence. And this was done under my auspices, and I'm uh, actually I'm pretty proud of it. So a brief des description of the methodology that we used to put this uh, together. Over two years ago, we conducted some exercises identifying some key assumptions and uncertainties. We did research and consulted with numerous experts in and outside the U.S. government to identify these trends. We tested early themes and arguments on a blog. We visited more than 35 countries and one territory, soliciting ideas and feedback from over 2,500 people of all walks, stations, and expertise all around the world. So this afternoon, I want to do three things. <clears throat> First, review se seven key global trends out to about the year 2035. And these trends center on population, economy, technology, ideology, governance, conflict, and the interrelated cluster of climate change, environment, and disease. And it is the latter that I will spend the most time on. Secondly, uh, I want to drill down in this region and use a shorter five-year time frame to talk about key challenges posed by Russia, China, North Korea, and terrorism. And third, conclude by looking at the implications of all of this, generally for the planet and specifically for Australia. So I'll try to hit the wave tops of all these issues. <clears throat> and then, of course, uh, as Geraldine uh, indicated, leave time for discussion, either about what I've talked about directly here or other national security issues on your minds. I do need to state that what I say here does not represent the official coordinated view of the U.S. intelligence community or uh, U.S. government policy. Or said another way, it is so very liberating to be free of the harness. <laughs> So the first of these trends pertains to population, and I think the headline here is the rich are aging and the, and the poor are not. The world's population, again, the framework here is over the next 20 years, the world's population will be larger, older, and more urban. But the effect on each country will vary as the major economies age and the developing world remains young. The world's population is forecast to jump from roughly 7.3 billion people to 8.8 .8 billion people by 2035. 
Africa, with fertility rates double those of the rest of the world, <clears throat> and parts of Asia will see their populations soar. This could lead to progress or disaster, depending on how well governments manage and societies ramp up education, health care, and infrastructure. People over 60, I'm happy to say, are becoming the world's fastest growing age group. The U.S. and Australia are both aging at a slower rate than, say, Japan and West European countries, and will sustain a growing working age population. The countries with chronically young populations <clears throat> will continue to be a challenge for places like the Mideast. These are the same areas where education levels are the lowest, which is a toxic combination that is fertile for spawning violent extremism. The number of people globally reaching working age during the next 20 years will decline sharply from about 1.2 billion people, working age people, between the, from the period of 1995 to 2015. That will go down to 850 million people of working age between in the period 2015 to 2035. By the way, for all of you, the ladies in the crowd, global, it's assessed that global GDP could rise by more than 10% by 2035 if the roles and relative compensation for women <coughs> were made equitable to that of men. Over half of all humanity lives in cities today, which will rise to over two-thirds <coughs> in 2050. Moreover, people are on the move. International migrants reached the highest levels ever recorded in 2015 with 244 million migrants 65 million of which are displaced. In other words, one of every 112 persons on the, on the, in the world are, is either a refugee, an internally displaced person, or an asylum seeker, a trend that's not likely to abate. The second global trend I'll speak to is economy. <clears throat> Here we see two countervailing trends. On one hand, global poverty is actually declining. Economic reforms in China and other Asian countries have fueled a historic rise in living standards for nearly a billion people since 1990. Cutting the share of the world living in extreme poverty, now again, there's a low threshold here, $2 a day, from about 35% of the world's population to, only to around 10%. At the same time, on the other hand, Western middle classes are being squeezed. Real median in household incomes in places like the United States, Germany, Italy, Japan, France, rose by less than 1% per year from the mid-1980s through the global financial crisis of 2008. In Australia, income growth has been higher, yet so has the growth of inequality. Most of the world's largest economies will likely underperform, at least by historical standards. China and the European Union, or EU, two of the world's three largest economies, will continue to try to make painful changes in the interest of long-term growth. China will be the biggest wild card as it tries to raise living standards for an increasingly demanding population while shifting away from a state-directed economy. <clears throat> and I think this balancing act is going to be a real challenge for the regime. All countries will face the challenge of maintaining employment. So that decline in the working age population <clears throat> may help. Automation, artificial intelligence, and other technological innovations pose a threat to the very existence of vast numbers of jobs 
to include white-collar and high-tech jobs, all up and down the socioeconomic ladder. Now, this is a segue to the third major trend, which deals with technology. And I'll just highlight two areas, information communications technology and biotechnology. You know, the Internet has been described as, quote, the largest experiment in anarchy in history and as, quote, the world's largest ungoverned space. Twenty years ago, the Internet connected 70 million people, or about 1% of the Earth's population. Today, it connects over half of the world's population. In 1990, one million people worldwide owned a mobile phone. Today, close to 6 billion are in circulation. The Internet of Things will create more efficiencies, but also create vulnerabilities and security risks. Right now, the Internet of Things has more than 10.5 billion endpoints, which are projected to grow by almost 30, to almost 30 billion by 2020, <coughs> entailing a market of U.S. 1.7 trillion, with a T, dollars. New financial technologies, including digital currencies, applications of blockchain technology for transactions, artificial intelligence, big data for predictive analytics, will profoundly change financial services with potentially big impacts on systemic stability and the security of critical financial infrastructure. Adversaries, especially non-state ones, will become ever more sophisticated at using these technologies. They will, for example, manipulate data to compromise its fidelity, which is actually more insidious and much harder to, to detect. And we're clearly going to see an increased use of ransomware. Biotechnologies are at an inflection point where advances in genetic editing, exemplified by innovative ways to manipulate genes, are turning science fiction into reality. This opens the possibilities to enhance human capabilities, treat disease, extend longevity, or boost food production. These technologies are also potentially very dangerous. They could threaten civil liberties and privacy, and they pose profound ethical questions. The quote I came across recently that I think is, uh, is very germane to this. If we continue to develop our technology without wisdom or prudence, our servant may prove to be our executioner. Ours is a world of technological giants and ethical infants. Now, this, was, this came from General Omar Bradley, who was chief of staff of the United States Army in his Armistice Day speech, which you call Remembrance Day, in 1948, <coughs> over 68 years ago. The dilemmas facing mankind don't change, particularly with respect to uh, confronting uh, the, both the, the upsides and downsides of technology. May maybe there's some reassurance in that. The fourth a uh, global trend I want to speak to briefly is under the rubric of ideology. To me, it's counterintuitive that a more interconnected world increases rather than decreases differences in ideas and identities, but that's exactly what's happening. Populism, which we're certainly experiencing in my country, in Europe, and to some extent in Australia, will increase over the next two decades if current demographic, economic, and governance trends Hold. This development is characterized by open hostility towards elites, conventional politics, and established institutions. 
And, of course, it rejects globalization. I would observe that mandatory voting serves to moderate populism. Similarly, exclusionary religious identities will continue to be a key factor in the Mideast and Africa. Religious identity will remain a powerful connection. Over 80% of the world is religiously affiliated, and that trend will increase because of the high fertility rates in the developing world. Tolerance and diversity, traditional values in Western Europe, Australia, and the United States <clears throat> will probably erode, making these ideals less appealing. The fifth trend is go addresses governance. Governments are going to have a tough time meeting public demands for security and prosperity. The gap between public expectation and government performance will generate more public distrust and dissatisfaction over the next 20 years. That applies certainly in the United States and in many other countries. Polls suggest that majorities in emerging nations, especially in the Mideast and Latin America, believe government officials, quote, don't care about people like them, unquote. Americans demonstrate the lowest levels of trust in government since such measurements were first done in 1958. Here in Australia, trust in politicians has dropped to the lowest level since it was first measured in 1969, with only 20, 26% of responders expressing confidence in government. Democracy itself will come into greater question. Freedom House re reported that measurements of freedom in 2016 declined in almost twice as many countries as it improved. The biggest setback for democracy in 10 years. While in past years, the declines in freedom were generally con concentrated among autocracies and dictatorships that simply went from bad to worse. And in 2016, 2016, it was established democracies that dominated the list of countries suffering setbacks. That brings me to the sixth trend, which deals with the nature of conflict. Conflict levels are increasing and battle-related deaths are up sharply since 2011. Violent extremists are operationally active in about 40 countries. A half dozen countries or so have, have experienced collapse of central government authority. 14 others face regime-threatening or violent instability or both. And approximately 60 countries exhibit some aspect of instability. There are now more Sunni violent extremist groups members, and safe havens than at any time in history. These non-state actors will grow more sophisticated in their use of technology such as cyber, man-portable anti-aircraft and anti-tank weapons, unmanned drones, and weapons of mass destruction. War can be waged from afar and antiseptically. Cyber attacks, precision-guided munitions, robotic systems, and unmanned weapons lower the threshold for conflict because attackers are physically insulated from the target and thus at less risk of harm to themselves. Current nuclear weapon states will almost certainly maintain and modernize their nuclear arsenals through the year 2035. The Russians particularly <coughs> are pursuing modernization of their strategic nuclear forces, both land and sea launched, and they have only one adversary in mind for these weapons, which is the United States. I also need to mention the importance of space, which will actually become more democratic 
as time goes on. Right now, some 80 countries in one way or another participate in space activities, with more expected over the next two decades. As nation-state budgets for space activities level off, private industry will fill the void and pursue such things as space tourism, asteroid mining, and space habitats. The Russians and the Chinese are embarked on very aggressive, multifaceted counter-space programs in direct recognition of the U.S. pervasive dependence on space. That brings me to the last global trend I want to speak to, which is the cluster of climate change, environment, and disease. And I'll spend the most time on this of all the seven trends. Now, I realize for some people, certainly in the United States, this is a controversial issue. And it's true that extreme weather events are hard to attribute entirely to climate change, but regardless of the cause, patterns of extreme and record-breaking weather events are likely to become more common. Past greenhouse gas emissions have already locked in significant, a significant rise in global mean temperatures for the next 20 years, no matter what greenhouse gas reduction policies are implemented now. Extreme weather can trigger crop failures, wildfires, energy blackouts, infrastructure breakdowns, supply chain disruptions, migration, infectious disease breakouts, and I'll have more to say about disease in a moment. Such events will be even more pronounced as people concentrate in climate-vulnerable locations like megacities and coastal regions. A few other sobering projections. By 2035, air pollution is projected to be the top cause of environmentally related deaths worldwide in the absence of new air quality policies. More than 80% of urban dwellers are already exposed to air pollution that exceeds safe limits, according to the World Health Organization. Half of the world's population will face water shortages by 2035, according to the United Nations. More than 30 countries, half of which are in the Middle East, will experience extreme water stress by 2035. And you only need, you want a living example of that, just look at Yemen. Melting ice in the polar regions will accelerate rises in sea levels over time. More than a third of the Earth's soil, <coughs> which produces 95% of the world's food supply, is already degraded. And that degradation will accelerate over the next 20 years as the world's population expands. Soil degradation is already occurring at rates as much as 40 times faster than new soil formation. These climate and environmental projections make the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord all the more disturbing and disappointing, both substantively and symbolically. Let me now turn to disease, which is very much related to climate and the environment. <clears throat> a recent article in the New York Times observed that with 7.3 million people, some 20 billion chickens, and 400 million pigs now sharing the earth, we have the ideal scenario for spawning and spreading dangerous microbes. Trade and travel have connected most points on the globe in a matter of hours. By some estimates, the Spanish so-called Spanish influenza epidemic in 1918-1919 killed more people than all the wars of the 20th century put together. Today, an influenza epidemic could be even more devastating. 
The spread of antibiotic-resistant microbes also continues at an ever faster rate. One recent comprehensive review predicted that if unchecked, drug-resistant infections will kill more people worldwide by 2050 than cancer and diabetes combined. Without a global effort, which I believe can only be led by the United States, we're in danger of reverting to a pre-antibiotic world in which a common cut could prove deadly and surgery would be just too risky for infection. Three years after, over three years after the Ebola crisis, we still don't have a licensed vaccine or a plan for how to deploy one to prevent future outbreaks. And of course, there's a real threat of terrorists deliberately spreading <coughs> disease. So disease is a fundamental existential national security issue and will be more so over the next two decades. So let me now turn to the second part of what I wanted to talk about today, which is the region. And as I said at the beginning, thinking long into the future is hard. There seems to be something in the human mind that resists envisioning far, far distant challenges. So I thought it would be worthwhile to looking at some of the trends I've outlined and how they'll impact this region and apply a shorter time frame, that is about five years. <clears throat> and here I'll focus on Russia, China, North Korea, and terrorism. Russia aspires to restore its great power status through nationalism, military modernization, nuclear saber-rattling, and foreign engagements abroad. Yet at home, Russia faces increasing constraints as its faltering and hydrocarbon-reliant economy struggles to emerge from two recessions, 2008-2009 and 2014-2017. When we think about Russian strength, it's worth remembering that as a country with a population of 145 million people, its GDP is about the same size as Australia's with a population of only 24 million. Moscow's role on the global stage has become a source of regime power and popularity at home. While Putin is personally popular, with approval, but approval ratings of 35% for the ruling party reflect public impatience with deteriorating quality of life conditions and abuse of power and corruption. If the Kremlin's tactics falter, Russia will become vulnerable to domestic instability driven by you know, dissatisfied elites. Life expectancy among males in Russia is the lowest of the industrial world, and its population will continue to decline. This has huge implications for the military, as the population of military-age males also de is declining. And the longer Moscow delays diversifying its economy, the more the government will invoke nationalism and ask for sacrifice of personal freedoms and pluralism just in the interest of maintaining control. To compensate for these vulnerabilities, Russia will continue its interference in the political processes of countries whom it considered adversaries, the United States and Europe. And that will continue to be a, a threat to our country <clears throat> as Russia, having been emboldened by their experience in our election in 2016, will be back even stronger in our subsequent elections. Let me turn to China. 
perhaps some more direct answers to this audience. China faces a daunting test <clears throat> with its political stability in the balance. After three decades of historic economic growth and social change, Beijing, amid slower growth and the after effects of a debt binge, is transitioning from an investment-driven, export-based economy to one fueled by domestic consumption. And satisfying the demands of its new rising middle class for clean air, affordable housing, improved services, <clears throat> and continued opportunities will be essential for the government to maintain both legitimacy and, all important to them, political order. Beijing probably has ample resources to prop up growth while efforts to spur private consumption take hold. Nonetheless, uh, the more it doubles down on state-owned enterprises in the economy, the more it will be at greater risk of financial shocks that challenge its ability to manage that economy. The country's rapidly shrinking working age population, which I alluded to before, in relation to its growing older population cohort, will slow growth. China views the continuing presence of the U.S. military in the Western Pacific, U.S. alliances in the region, and U.S. protection of Taiwan as outdated and, rep represent and representative of the continuation of China's 100 years of humiliation. China has embarked on a very impressive long-term military modernization program, which its leaders believe is essential to achieving great power status. China's officially disclosed military budget grew at an average rate of 8.5% per year, adjusted for inflation from 2007 to, 2006 to 2016, and they seem committed to increases in defense spending for the foreseeable future, even as their economic growth slows. And they're leveraging this growing military power to, of course, assert their claims in the East and South China Seas. <clears throat> it would seem appropriate at this point maybe to briefly compare the challenges posed by Russia and China. Both of these countries maintain worldviews in which they see themselves as dominant in their regions. Both are exerting greater influence in their regions to contest the U.S. geopolitically and to compel Washington to accept their exclusionary regional spheres of influence. However, it's not clear whether there is a mutually agreeable, mutually acceptable line between what China and Russia each consider as their respective natural spheres of influence. China, I think, benefits more from the current inter international order, and its economy is much more integrated with the West. That's why I view China more benignly than I do Russia. I think the economic engagement and the benefit China gets from the current system serves to moderate their behavior. Moscow, on the other hand, and forgive my preoccupation with Russia, has little stake in the rules of the global economy. Moscow will test NATO and European resolve, seeking to undermine Western unity and credibility, not to mention democratic processes. Moscow will stay active in the Middle East and those parts of the world in which it believes it can check U.S. influence, <clears throat> and will remain committed to nuclear weapons, which, of course, is its ticket to superpower status. Let me turn to Korea briefly. Tension on the peninsula will continue in the near term with the possibility of, of serious confrontation. 
Kim Jong-un is consolidating his grip on power through a combination of patronage and executions. Continued North Korean provocations, including additional nuclear and missile tests, might worsen stability in the region and prompt neighboring countries to take actions. Kim is determined to secure international recognition of the North as a nuclear-armed state for the purpose of security, prestige, <coughs> and political legitimacy. Unlike his father and grandfather, he has signaled a little interest in participating in talks on denuclearization. He codified the North's nuclear status in the party constitution in 2012 and reaffirmed it during the party congress in 2016. And as I learned when I visited Pyongyang in November of 2014, truly a surreal experience, the North Koreans are not going to denuclearize. The fourth and final trend I want to talk about in the region is terrorism. And the threat here is likely to increase over the next five years as the means and the motivations of states, groups, and individuals to impose harm diversify. Terrorists will continue to justify their violence by their own interpretations of religion, but several underlying factors are also uh, at play. The breakdown of state structures that I alluded to earlier, and the proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia fueled a larger Shia-Sunni sectarianism. <clears throat> the schism between Shia and Sunni is likely to worsen over the next five years and probably longer. The trends influencing terrorism during the next five years and beyond will depend heavily on how two, two situations are resolved or not. First, many intra- and inter-state conflicts currently underway, the Syrian civil war and the conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, the Sahel region of Africa, Somalia, Yemen, and elsewhere, will determine the intensity and geography of future violence. Second are the thousands of foreign fighters we have today. Unless they are identified, de-radicalized, and reintegrated back into society, they will remain the recruiting pool for tomorrow's violent non-state actors on a sustaining basis. Similarly, disaffected migrants, without better integration, education, and economic opportunity, will also be a recruiting pool for violent extremist groups. So, <clears throat> let me turn then to a brief discussion of uh, some co the conclusions might, might be drawn from all this and, and implications. And that is for the globe, for this region, and specifically for Australia. So in terms of global implications, first, the international order is at a crossroads. The post-World War II international order that enabled today's political, economic, and security structures and institutions is in question as power continues to diffuse globally. This brings into question civil, political, and human rights, hallmarks of liberal values in <coughs> U.S. leadership since the end of World War II. The United States, under President Trump, with its avowed nationalist and protectionist policies, is now actually contributing to the demise of this post-World War II order. The downsides of globalization that drive some governments to adopt protectionist and nationalist policies might also create opportunities to increase resilience 
and innovation at local levels, and I'll speak more to this in a moment. Secondly, this, of course, almost an obvious observation, is a time of testing for the United States. The next five years, not to mention the next 20, are going to severely test the resilience of the United States. And again, I'll discuss in a moment how I think this applies to Australia. Uncertainty, I can attest, is high around the world regarding our global leadership role. Many of my former foreign intelligence partners have expressed great concern to me about where, what, what exactly is the direction the United States is going to take. These trends are global. They don't lend themselves to individual nation-state solutions. What is needed is leadership that only the United States can, can provide. As President Obama once correctly observed, when bad things happen in the world, people don't call the emergency number 911 in Moscow or Beijing, they call Washington. And whether and how we answer that phone has profound implications not only for the United States, but for the globe. So we're living in a paradox. Achievements in the industrial and information ages are shaping a world over the next two decades that is both far more dangerous, but also far richer with opportunity than ever before. Whether promise or peril prevails will clearly turn on the choices that mankind makes. So, with that extensive litany of doom, <laughs> let me conclude on a more positive, upbeat note. And this speaks to the implications of all this for Australia. Studies have shown <clears throat> that measuring a state's resilience is likely to be a better determinant of success in coping with future chaos and disruption than traditional measures of material power alone. Tomorrow's successful states will probably be those who, that invest in infrastructure, knowledge, and relationships resilient to shock, whether economic, environmental, societal, or cyber. There are six factors enhancing the resiliency of states <clears throat> which I want to briefly describe. First, governance. Governments capable of providing goods and services, promoting political inclusiveness, enforcing the rule of law, and earning the trust of their populace will be better positioned to absorb shocks and rally their population in response. The next trait of resilience is financial strength. States with diversified economies Manageable government debt and adequate financial reserves, robust private sectors, and adaptable and innovative workforces will be more resilient. Third, society. A prepared, integrated, and orderly society is likely to be cohesive and resilient in the face of unexpected change and have a high tolerance for coping with adversity. Fourth is infrastructure. The robustness of a state's critical infrastructure, including diversified sources of energy and secure and redundant communication, information, health, and financial networks, will lessen a state's vulnerability to both natural disasters and intentional attempts to create disruption through cyber or other forms of attack. Security. States with a high military capacity and capable and trusted domestic law enforcement and emergency responders good civil-military relations, and robust alliances will more likely be able to defend against unexpected attacks and restore domestic order following a disruptive shock. 
Finally, natural resources. States that have a large landmass, high levels of biodiversity, and good quality air, food, soil, and water will be more resilient to natural disasters. As I look around this country, I see plenty of indications of this resilience in all six of these criteria. Australia is actually well-placed to weather the shocks of the future that I described earlier. In the past, I've often used the cliche that Australia punches way above its weight. <clears throat> well, I was only describing Australian intelligence capabilities, which I can attest, uh, given my 30-plus year association with Australian intelligence, is absolutely true. But this analysis of a state's resilience in the face of the challenges facing the planet actually describes Australia much more broadly and, in my view, as well, accurately. You do indeed punch above your weight, not just in intelligence, but in my view, as a nation. But I've witnessed a lot of hand-wringing while I've been here about the loss of U.S. leadership, and people point to President Trump's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord, which of course groups us right up there with such stellar nations as Syria and Nicaragua, as the most prominent and dramatic example, among others, of the U.S. taking off its leadership cape. So I'd offer two points. First, the bilateral alliance is bigger and stronger than a transient, unorthodox occupant of the White House. <laughs> we have several... <clears throat> we have several bilateral pillars, economic, diplomatic, military, intelligence, and our traditional values that we share, which are longstanding, deep, and durable. And it is my strongly held belief that those pillars will continue to underpin the relationship between our two countries. Second, I would humbly and respectfully suggest that Australia can and should fill perceived leadership voids that the U.S. leaves. Australia already has global responsibility and is already regarded as an influential global voice. Given how well Australia meets the six criteria for resilience, a much more enlightened way to gauge national strength, in my view. I have no doubt about Australia's rightful place as a, as a prominent global leader. Obviously, it's up to Australia whether it wants to assume that mantle or not. Polling by the Lowy Institute, the most recent iteration of which came out this week, suggests that the Australian public is confident about its place in the world, that they understand the resilience of the country. And I hope the policymakers here listen to the sentiments implied by these public attitudes and act with confidence in the world. Of course, there'll be debate in this country on how you face these future challenges. And judging, again, by my long association with Australia, I feel confident this debate will be thorough and inclusive. So I'll close my remarks on this slightly more optimistic note, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. Well, Jim, that really was a marvellous overview. Just so many things going through my mind, um, and I've, I've got to make a choice. Filling the leadership void that might be vacated by the US, 
Now, I just wonder if you could just expand a little bit more. Do you mean creating new architecture like the OPEX and things like that? How do you do that? Because I remember once suggesting to somebody in a, in a, in a dialogue, and I said, could we be a bridge? And I there are words in diploma, diplo uh, diplomatic terms that are very powerful. And he really arced up in this. He said, you're not, Australia isn't qualified to play that role. And I, I, I learned a little lesson there about not overreaching, <laughs> but having ambitions. So I just wonder, with all your experience, how would you see it? Well, I think uh, I, I, I didn't, I'm not, did not mean to suggest that uh, Australia should run out and form a uh, monolithic NATO-like alliance in the Pacific. I, don't, I didn't mean that at all. I do, I do think on a building block basis, though, Australia can take the lead <clears throat> with uh, a, a smaller coalition of, of the willing. And I'm thinking of countries like Canada, like Singapore, like Japan, like Vietnam. <clears throat> and Australia, I think, can be a, a compelling voice and fill, again, if there is the perception of a loss of leadership on the part of the U.S., I think Australia can help fill that void. I'm not saying to assume <clears throat> the global role the United States plays, but I think certainly in the region, Australia has a, a leadership role to play. And the way, because that's being discussed now in terms of joint exercises, given the uh, IS involved in Mindanao and other places. I mean, there, in fact, there is some quite interesting moves by the Malaysians and the Indonesians and the Singaporeans to collaborate, which is really quite a, a big change from ASEAN's normal role. That's the sort of thing you're, th you're thinking about. I am, <clears throat> as well. Um, when I was still uh, DNI um, some months ago, we convened. Uh, a conference on terrorism. Well, I did one in Europe where there are some profound challenges on information sharing. <clears throat> and then we did one out here. Um, and I believe from my observations from that conference on the issue of terrorism, again, uh, Australia can play a leading role. But I, I hasten to add that, uh, you know, I'm, fo I'm thinking uh, about the region. I, so I should also say uh, as an American, I'm uh, a little resident about uh, poking my nose in Australian business, but since you asked. Uh... <laughs> I know, do go right ahead. Um, I have to also ask you about North Korea, because that visit in 2015, I think you were the first uh, senior level American to visit since Madeleine Albright in something like 2001 or two when she was working for, for Bill Clinton. Tell us about that visit. Well. I served in, uh, in South Korea as the uh, J-2, or uh, Director of Intelligence for U.S. Forces Korea, in the mid-'80s. <clears throat> and I kind of got into the situation on the peninsula and uh, followed it, never, whatever incumbency I've had since, and probably most uh, intensively uh, the last the six and a half years I was uh, DNI. So uh, in November of 2014, uh, I was tapped to uh, go to North Korea and retrieve two of our citizens who were there under hard labor uh, conditions. And I had some discussions uh, with uh, two senior uh, North Korean uh, generals, uh, a political general <coughs> who was then uh, uh, Minister of, the Sta of State Security. I think he's since been executed. <laughs> and then the uh, chief of what's called the Reconnaissance General Bureau, which is an analog of special operations and intelligence, and he touted himself as uh, my counterpart. 
I thought I understood uh, a lot about North Korea just having followed it from an intelligence perspective for all these years. I was blown away with the magnitude and depth of paranoia and the siege mentality that prevails in North Korea. It was amazing to me. <clears throat> My first White House issued talking point was to tell them you must denuclearize. That is a non-starter, as I found out. They are not going to do that. They understand that the, the nuclear weapons, by the way, neither they nor we know if they'll work. It doesn't matter because they've achieved their objective of creating deterrence. <clears throat> but they're not going to give them up whatever they have. Second, everyone looks to China <clears throat> as the country which has the most influence, the most leverage over um, North Korea. And uh, as I found when I visited China about a year ago, uh, they don't like uh, the behavior of Kim Jong-un either. They don't like the missile tests. They don't like the underground nuclear tests. And they certainly don't like the THAAD, which is a <clears throat> high-altitude air defense system designed to protect the Republic of Korea. But what they don't like even more <clears throat> is the thought of North Korea collapsing and they're losing their buffer state. They can't countenance. It's a strategic imperative for them not to have a, un a unified peninsula under the control of the Republic of Korea buttressed by the United States right up there on their border. We were quite surprised <clears throat> in the United States when China signed up to United, States, United Nations Security Council Resolution 2270, which actually has some very draconian uh, sanctions in it. And the Chinese agreed to it. They didn't veto it, which they could have, on the uh, Security Council. There is, however, a big loophole there where uh, they don't have to impose sanctions if it would cause humanitarian uh, problems in North Korea. So that's, that's a loophole big enough to drive a truck through. So the Chinese will exert leverage, but uh, just, uh, just so much. Next point is, in my view, the United States really doesn't have any peremptory military options. I understand the need for the, the rhetoric, the public rhetoric, to keep all options on the table. But in, in all seriousness, that's not something we could do. If we were to attack, say, Pyongyang uh, Pyong Nuclear Research Facility, or one of the KN-08 sites, that's the missile, the designation of the missile that's designed to reach the United States. <clears throat> I believe the North Koreans would react reflexively and without any deliberation whatsoever would unleash all that artillery and rocketry along the DMZ and do what they've vowed to do on more than one occasion, which is change Seoul into a sea of fire. That puts at risk about 25 million Koreans in the greater metropolitan Seoul area, not to mention thousands of Americans and thousands of Korean-American dual citizens. So I don't think preemptory military action on the part of the United States is feasible. And all the rhetoric about major, major conflict and deploying an armada someplace <coughs> is really not helpful <laughs> and only hypes that sense of siege and paranoia that I observed <coughs> in, in North Korea. <clears throat> what might we do about this? Well, everybody, at least three administrations before this one, have tried negotiating 
imposing sanctions, uh, pressuring the, the North Koreans, pressuring the Chinese, or some combination thereof, all with not much success. So what I am going to suggest in, in Seoul when I speak there <clears throat> is that the United States consider, in coordination with the Republic of Korea and in consultation with the other stakeholders in the region, the establishment of a diplomatic interest section in Pyongyang, much as we had in Havana, Cuba, for decades to deal with a government we never recognized. And there are several advantages to this, uh, the first of which is to have an in-residence permanent diplomatic presence for dialogue. Second, to give us more access to North Korea and to gain a greater understanding of what's going on there. And third and most important, to serve as a conduit for information from the outside world, which the North Koreans mm -hmm. don't want and don't like. And I think over time that might hold the possibility for a soft implosion, if you will, <clears throat> and we shouldn't push so hard, as despicable as he is, for a regime change of Kim Jong-un. I also really don't think it's unreasonable, an unreasonable demand on the part of the North Koreans for a peace treaty. It's all in next month, in July, will be the 64th anniversary of the armistice. On 27 July 1953, we just agreed to stop shooting. As the North Koreans look at it, looking south, they see a very formidable conventional military, which is far better than what they have, and they know that, that's right on a hair trigger, all set to invade North Korea and to change the regime. Again, they find that very threatening. Also, at least talking to them about a peace treaty would help to deflate one of the major arguments, the assertions they make to their own pe people for why they have to impose all these draconian controls on the population and the uh, grotesque investment that they make in things military. What I've suggested here will probably uh, go over like a lead balloon for a lot of people. Right now, in the, <clears throat> in the, in the wake of the egregious treatment and tragic death of Otto Wambier, this will be regarded as a uh, reward for extremely bad behavior. But I just think we're in a really bad place right now. I think the rhetoric that's <clears throat> being exchanged could easily lead, to, could easily spin out of control, and we would be faced with a conflagration of biblical proportions with all sorts of death and destruction. So we, we need to be in a better place. Right now, the United States, I think, is stuck on its narrative, and I went there and helped recite it when I was there. And similarly, the North Koreans are certainly stuck on their narrative. The people I engaged with were geezers like me. They are not going to change. I think the U.S. needs to be the, the bigger partner here and suggest a change in the paradigm. <clears throat> the one debate point in the discussions I had with the North Koreans where they didn't give me the finger in the chest rebuttal was when I suggested to them that the United States really has no permanent enemies. And I cited Germany and Japan as cases in point. And I went on to cite my own personal experience. I spent my, tour, my war with Southeast Asia, I spent two tours there. The first one in Vietnam in 1965 and 66. I hated it. 
I didn't go back to Vietnam for 47 years. And when I did, <clears throat> it was very impactful to see how Vietnam has progressed and developed. And we, the U.S., now have economic relations with, with Vietnam. We have diplomatic relations with Vietnam. We have military relations with Vietnam. We are friendly states. So could it be with the DPRK. And that's the one, only point I made where I didn't get a pretty nasty rebuttal. Very, that is a fascinating uh, story. Um, uh, we could go on, but I'm going to invite. Um, there are two mics, mic one and two here. We'll only have time for a couple of questions, but if you would like to, if you'd <coughs> mind stating your name, please, and make it a question rather than a, a statement, if you, if you wouldn't mind. And while you're arriving, I'm going to ask you the final one, because I suspect I won't have a chance to ask another one. I see today that President Trump mentioned or had a, a bleat that the Obama administration had actually not called out the Russians, even when it knew, and presumably you were involved in this, just how it was intervening in the electoral process, and it didn't do enough to stop it. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I, I find that uh, just a tad disingenuous. Uh, and he, he does know better. I will tell you, we did, we did a number of things. Uh, certainly President Obama engaged in a very pointed personal discussion with Putin about it. John Brennan, the director of CIA, engaged with Bortnikov, his FSB counterpart, <clears throat> about it. We did issue a statement. I say we, sec then Secretary of Homeland Security Jay Johnson and I issued a statement on the 7th of October, which laid out uh, pretty succinctly and directly what the Russians were doing. This was a month before the election. And we ascribe blame for it to the highest levels of the Russian government. The dilemma, though, and of course, you know, people are going to write books about the, the, the coulda, woulda, shouldas. The dilemma we had, and we discussed this uh, untold hours in the White House Situation Room, was if we make a big thing about this, meaning if the president himself spoke about it, would that be amping up and dignifying magnifying what the Russians were doing. So we debated about that. Secondly, President Obama was very concerned about if he did that, would he be putting his hand on the scale in favor of Hillary Clinton and to the disfavor of, of Donald Trump? And third, <clears throat> although I never saw him, I never heard him say this, I think he believed that the electorate in the United States would see through all of this and do the right thing. So <clears throat> you, you, we can debate till the cows come home about, you know, should we have done more earlier and all that? <coughs> Excuse me. We did end up imposing some pretty stiff sanctions on the Russians to include expelling 35 of their most infamous uh, intelligence operatives in the United States, closing two dodges uh, in the United States, one of which on the eastern shore of Maryland, was a, a very extensive signal intelligence collection site against the U.S., and we did impose a lot of sanctions. Now, you know, 29th of December, a little late in the process, I, I, I get that, uh, but we did impose some sanctions, which amazingly the Russians didn't respond to as they customarily do. Mm. I'll, I'll stop there. Okay. <laughs> I think we get your point. Yes, please. Uh, hi, my name is Greg. I just wanted to thank you for such a sophisticated analysis. It's been a pleasure to hear you speak, sir. Um, my question is about Korea, North Korea. 
Um, if their missiles and their um, weapons are as potentially defective as you say, are they anything more than a local threat? Do they have the ability to project anything beyond, well, beyond South Korea? Now, what I'm going to do is invite the person behind, so I think, because looking at the time, we'll get a couple and then you can respond. Yes, please. Uh, hi, my name is Mohammed, and thank you for the very in-depth uh, analysis. Appreciate it. Uh, you referred to um, conflict or um, proxy war between Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia. Is it more accurate to state that it's between Shiite of Iran and so, um, Wahhabis of uh, Saudi Arabia rather than Shiites and Sunnis? I'm sorry, I didn't it, In other words, is it, is it really Sunni and Shia, uh, 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 or is it the Wahhabis of, of Iran and uh, some of the Shiites? I think that's what you're saying. The Shiite of Iran and so, uh, the, Wahhabis, uh, Wahhabis of Saudi Arabia. But not the whole Sunni, not the whole Sunni yeah, world. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yep. And lastly, sorry, just one extra <coughs> question. Uh, the policy of President Obama to support the rebels of Syria, was it the... Not, what was not as a, another, poly, another reflection or uh, a mirror image of uh, support that uh, Americans lent to Afghans or Pakistanis to fight Russians, uh, which backfired and caused to create more uh, yeah. terrorists, basically, in Afghan, uh, back to, against the West. Okay. Thank you. So would you like to take the Korea one first? Well, if I <clears throat> understood the question correctly, is uh, North Korea only pose a threat uh, uh, locally? Lo yeah. Uh, <clears throat> well, the, the threat we are most, uh, we have the most certitude about where we have observed their, their capabilities uh, are in the shorter range uh, missiles. They have not tested uh, the, long range, the longer range missiles. Now, we've seen them <clears throat> uh, in parades and the like and seen them deploy, so we have to assume the worst that they will, but we have more uh, high-level confidence about the threat that's posed both to, North, to South Korea as well as uh, in the region. On the Sunni Shia, uh, I didn't mean to, <clears throat> clearly didn't mean to condemn all of those uh, branches of, of the Muslim religion, but only the context of this, what is seen as a Sunni Shia um, um, war, uh, I guess, and, and taken in its different forms, which <clears throat> both Iran and Saudi Arabia kind of assume uh, the leadership for. So it's a, an admixture of uh, wearing a religious mantle when, in some respects, it's more two nation states opposed to one another. Although I think what the gentleman was almost implying was, you know, this, this whole Saudi Arabian involvement is troubles a lot of people, I think. Yeah. And whether it is, it, that's a subset that distorts the whole discussion? It, you know, we've had a, a challenging relationship with Saudi Arabia. I certainly did. Uh, during my time, they were uh, very good partners in terms of CT. Uh, a lot of things have happened in Saudi, I think, to start to change attitudes there. <clears throat> particularly since they have a branch of uh, ISIS operating in mm -hmm. Saudi. So they are, they are seeing the results of this. Now, they've been, I think, uh, a little slow to change, for example, uh, textbooks in their schools that could uh, better educate their young people about uh, the dangers and the pitfalls of extremism. Uh, with respect to Syria, I think... I understood the question, I think, precisely for the reason you mentioned. Uh, involvements in wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which 
go on endlessly, uh, is the very reason that President Obama, at least, was very, very reluctant to engage in a major way in yet another Mideast conflict, read Syria. Of all the problems we dealt with uh, in, the, in the U.S. government, national security apparatus in the, in the government for six and a half years, clearly Syria was the most intractable, and it remained so. Do you have any regrets in, in retrospect about, especially that the red line that wasn't observed? <clears throat> well, it, it, it would have, I, I suppose it might have been better not to have, have drawn red lines. You know, mm. that's, and someday you might have to live up to them. That's, uh, you know, yes, well, that's that's eloquent. lesson okay. learned, I guess. All right. <laughs> yes, please. Hi, first of all, I want to say thank you for being here. Um, you mentioned earlier about the trust uh, between Australia and America. And as an American um, expat family, we've been noticing this more and more with the rise of nationalism and populism. And I was just wondering, you know, it, as many times as we get confronted and we get asked questions, it's become apparent that even my words on a personal level are either creating a bigger rift or helping to close that divide or create a bridge. And how do you manage that when you're out um, with all the uncertainty around America right now when people yeah. ask you questions? Well, <clears throat> the way I try, uh, try to do it is what I uh, spoke to today about uh, the important pillars that underlie uh, the alliance between Australia and the uh, United States, one of which I'm very familiar with, and I've helped build over ever since I, the first time I came here in 1984. And so those are, in, in my in my mind, very enduring uh, pillars of <clears throat> the alliance between the bonds between our two countries, which I think are are, are very strong, and which I think will be uh, sustained and will be ascendant over. Um, you know, governance by tweet. <laughs> at, least, at least I hope so. Yes, it's uh, certainly a challenging uh, time. And of course, to hear your defence secretary, Jim Mattis, who was a general, like you, know, like you uh, in Singapore recently, was to hear a very different tone, yeah. a much more traditional American tone. But he's certainly not the president. That's right. I, uh, I have... A great admiration and, and, and respect for uh, Jim Mattis. I, I, I knew him when he was on active duty. He was a, <clears throat> a great uh, Marine general, and he'll, uh, he is a stalwart as uh, Secretary of Defense. And I hope that he can go on uh, speaking uh, his own voice uh, in all this, because I think a lot of people, both inside the United States and outside the United States, look to him for... Uh, a, le a more orthodox uh, uh, approach. Mm. The question is, has, uh, with all the corruption purges, particularly in the military, with Xi Jinping's <coughs> corruption purges, has that altered the rhetoric, the rhetorical anti-North Korean behaviour, do you think? Do you think it's played any role in, in Chinese conduct? Uh, I haven't... Uh, <coughs> that's a good question, and I can't say that I've detected a, uh, a relationship between the reform... And uh, anti-corruption moves in, um, which President Xi is clearly on, mm. and whether that's <coughs> had any, if I get the drift here, is 
impact on how the Chinese would uh, treat uh, North Korea, meaning uh, that they'd, they'd ramp it up. And in fact, if I could, uh, I think if actually people worry that it might be the reverse. Funnily enough, that the that in fact he would go hard. He went a bit hard on Korea and then pulled back. And I've heard people say, is that because the PLA isn't really with him? Mm, I don't think so. You don't think so? Uh, not from my discussions uh, when I was in China about a year ago, and I met. My primary interlocutor was the Minister of State Security there, who oversees all the intelligence and security organizations. And I don't think the, frankly, I don't, I'm not sure the military has a big role here other than uh, contingency planning for if North Korea were to implode right. and what to do about the flood of refugees mm -hmm. that would uh, flow into, uh, uh, into China. That is a military concern, but I think the, the policy and the uh, political judgments uh, are uh, uh, made at levels above the military. Look, I know we could go on, and <laughs> I can see people who want to... I don't know whether you've got a few moments to talk to people, but I think we've had a really marvellous overview from a liberated man, as he said, who can speak <laughs> his mind. <laughs> and I think we've been very privileged. So will you please thank, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Can I say one more thing? Yeah, you can say one more thing, yes. I, I did uh, want, uh, want to just take note of uh, when I left the government on the 20th of January, happily, uh, <clears throat> after about 53 years in one capacity or another in, in intelligence. And, I received a lot of mementos and awards and all that sort of thing, but none that meant more to me than presentation by Prime Minister Turnbull when he was in the States before I left, a replica of the iconic picture from World War II, the Australian soldier carrying a wounded American soldier, and a wonderful inscription on the bottom of the statuette about acknowledging my partnership and support for Australia and uh, I will just I would like to say to this group how much that meant to me we have certain rules in our country where you get gifts from foreign government if you want to keep them you got to pay for them it's the only one I paid for thank you